We're going to see an expression of praise again in Psalm 66. So if you turn there with me. In 1940, the Nazi army invaded the Netherlands and set up a registration process to identify the Jews living among the Dutch natives. I had the opportunity this last week with my kids to watch the 1975 version of this called The Hiding Place, the story of the Ten Booms who stepped up to provide refuge and shelter to numerous families, Jewish families that were marked impending destruction in the concentration camps. They were forced to wear the yellow star of David to identify them. And of course, anyone who harbored the Jews would undergo the similar fate of the Jews in the concentration camps. For four years, Casper, the father, and his daughters, Corey and Betsy, hid these Jewish families in their homes. Until one night, midnight, February 28, 1944, the Nazis learned of the work of the Ten Booms and invaded their house. Casper, the father, died ten days later in prison. Corey and her sister were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Betsy died on December 16, 1944, less than a year the time that they were taken off into prison, into the concentration camp. But before she died, she said to Corey this, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Well, there's a clerical error that led to Corey Tenboom's release some 12 days after her sister died. She found that out sometime later. The woman prisoners her age in the camp were killed the following week. She was able to write a book called Tramp for the Lord. And she... She wrote that three years after she was released from the concentration camp, she had the opportunity to meet one of the Ravensbrück camp guards, one of the prisoners who was known for his cruelty. She writes this. She said, For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. As she held the hand of this guard, this cruel guard, she was able to forgive. Corey Tenboom was a professing believer in the saving work of Christ, and she understood the forgiveness of God in light of her sins. She understood redemption and found hope in that. When we read Psalms like this, Psalm 66, we are confronted with a similar darkness that Corey and Betsy might have gone through. Indeed, Corey and Betsy went through a concentration camp and only Corey made it through the other side and learned forgiveness through it. The psalmist describes darkness and despair. He describes those who are enemies. He describes the rebellious in verse 7. And he describes being tested, tried, verse 11, brought into a net, having a crushing, crushing burden on his back, men riding over our heads. It is, it's a description of chariots that are riding over the, the heads of the dead in the fields of the nations that they've conquered. Graphic de- depiction of trouble and turmoil. Verse 12, we went through fire and through water. Graphic hardship and trials. And yet in the midst of this, we see that the epicenter of this psalm is not escape from the trial. 
is not somehow God's physical prosperity, although there's an abundance that's mentioned here. But the epicenter of this psalm revolves around redemption. Look with me at verse 5 through 7. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The center of this psalm isn't escape. It's finding hope in the midst of the promise of redemption that the people of Israel had already experienced in the past. In fact, look at the present realities in verse 5. Come and see what God has done. The invitation is used of processionals uh, to Jerusalem for a worship festival. A time to, to delight and rejoice. In what? In remembrance of what God had done in delivering his people out of Egypt. You see, they were for 400 years in bondage, in shackled. They were slaves to Pharaoh and to Egypt, the wives, the children, for 400 years. And God stepped in to deliver them. And as this psalm reminds them of the Exodus event by appealing to God's work in delivering them through the sea, turning the sea into dry land and bringing them through, so that this Red Sea event becomes the epitome, the expression of the Exodus event, which God redeemed and delivered his people, and judged Egypt. The amazing thing here, amazing character, verses 5 through 7, is that he invites the present believers to join those in the past through the proclamation of the message of redemption. In fact, we see this statement in verse 6, there did we, we rejoice in him. What do you mean we? These are present believers far removed from this event. But you see, they are the people of God. And so as the people of God, he has delivered them in that past event. They all experience deliverance. And they all go back as the message is proclaimed and preached to remember and to see and behold as if it was right there in front of their eyes. Paul in Galatians 3, when he confronts the Galatian church and says, who's bewitched you? Who's led you away from the cross? to think that you can grow by the power of your own flesh by keeping the law. Who's led you away from Christ? He says, I preached the cross. I portrayed Christ as crucified. That is through his preaching. He lifted high the cross so they could look at the cross of Christ. They could see Jesus Christ and believe in him. He preached the gospel, the good news, as if they came and saw the glory of Christ on the cross through the preaching of the message. And so, too, the psalmist, in the midst of the heat of trials, draws hope from coming to see redemption in the proclamation of the message of the Exodus. This is our hope, our joy. In fact, in verse 1, shout for joy to God all the earth. This joy is rooted and grounded in the proclamation of redemption, the good news of the work of God's salvation. As we read scripture, we begin to realize that God had established these types and pictures in this Exodus event in the Red Sea to point to the ultimate reality of God's deliverance through the cross. And so we see these similar terms of redemption 
in the Exodus event applied to Christ's work on the cross, redeeming us out of the bondage and slavery of sin. It's guilt. It's shame. It's death. We see the pictures of the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of the Exodus event applied to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so it is no accident that we too, as the people of God, are invited to look and to behold Christ through the message preached. But what's interesting is this is their joy in the midst of trial. We're going to look at two causes for joy that produce glorious praise, weighty praise. Two causes for joy that produce glorious praise. And the first one is the renown of God's name. I use the word renown, glory, splendor, a proclamation of God's name. And the second is the renown of God's work. And we see this emphasis of glory in verse uh, 2, glorious praise. In verse 4, worship, singing praise, singing praise to your name. It says renown. Renown of his name, renown of his work. Now, when we look at his work, we will cover verses 3 through verse 20, and we'll look at four features of his work. So we'll unpack it a little more. I won't give it to you yet. We'll focus on his name in verses 1 and 2. His name. Let's read verse 1 and 2 again. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Stop there. Who is to rejoice in the renown and the glory of God? Who is to rejoice? Well, all the earth. It's a phrase that describes all flesh. The nations, Gentile and Jew. One of God's salvation promises established with Abraham was that a seed, a son of Abraham, would bring blessing upon not only Jews who would believe the promises of salvation in Christ, but also Gentiles. Indeed, you you see glimpses of God's saving work to the Gentiles. You are confronted with Ruth, a Moabites, who trusted in the promises, and Rahab from Jericho, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, or Cyrus from Medo-Persia. Glimpses of this promise in which the gospel message goes forth, the promise of the Messiah who saves people from their sins. And we see individuals, Gentiles, trusting these promises. There's no greater realization to this than we find when Christ is lifted up exalted through the cross. And we see that gospel good news in the book of Acts moving like fire from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. And we see Jew and Gentile brought together to the body of Christ. Ephesians recounts this for us. Notice all the earth rejoices. Jew and Gentile rejoice in the renown of God. Notice the character of their joy. There's shouting. There are four commands here. To shout, to sing, to give, or to establish, or make, and to say. Shout is uh, the word we get uh, a ram's horn, blasting a signal of celebration. It's used of a king at his enthronement, a king's victory over an enemy, a call to war, or an alarm of warning. It is a bellowing, a trumpeting forth. He uses this depiction to describe all the earth, Jew and Gentile, rejoicing in the promise of God, shouting, bellowing like a trumpet forth to God. Notice sing. The Hebrew root word is psalm. A psalm is a a spiritual song to God that recounts his character and his work. 
such a psalm as this, meditating on who God is and what He's done and recounting that. He says, sing the glory of His name. Recount back to Him His greatness. Give or make, the New American Standard uses, make His praise glorious, the New American Standard says. This is give to Him glorious praise. It's the idea of to fix or to establish. In verse 9, the word is used of keeping our soul among the living to establish our soul in life. We, as believers, make His praise glorious. We fix His praise, His glorious, weighty praise. And then He moves into our communication in verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. What effects? Shouting with great joy, singing, and our speech. The Holy Spirit has underlined three expressions of worship, shouting, singing, and our speaking. As I was thinking through praise, what does it mean to praise God? I was drawn to the chapter before, Psalm 65. It becomes a rich analogy of our praise as he evokes on themes from creation. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 65. He says this, Praise is due to you. Literally, praise waits upon you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. It's as if here are these praises stored up in the entrance room of God's throne room, ready to, to burst forth and to give Him praise. It's, it's waiting upon Him. It's due Him. And He begins to unfold this praise in verse 5. By awesome deeds, your answer, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The psalmist describes this praise that waits in attendance upon the Lord, ready to explode upon him. But he draws from creation in verses 6 through 8. It's as if we, we're so limited in our sight, we, we can't, we're, we're not content to look at Scripture to see the power of God displayed. And so he, he adds to that the, the depth of creation and says, through the Word of God, I want you to take the Word as a lens and look at creation. God is a powerful God, but He's displayed His power as you look at the mountains. As you look at the roaring of the seas, let it be a visual reminder to you as God stills the roaring of the seas, the stormy seas, so He will do the same to those who are rebellious against Him, to those who oppose Him as a tumult. He will still them too. Draw from the pictures of creation as you think through the spiritual realities of God's work. I think of the picture of this lighthouse and it seemed in the middle of the ocean. I was not in the middle of the ocean, but it's out there. And there's this little man sitting on this, this lighthouse and there's huge waves crashing forth upon the lighthouse. You think, how small, and that's frightening, and I hate the ocean, which is flying over it. Scares me. Frightens us. He says, draw from the power of God over the ocean. The one who stands behind it is the one who will silence the rebelliousness of the peoples. In verse 8, he describes these as signs that the earth is to stand in awe of. Signs that point us back to God's power. Look at verse 9 through 13. You visit the earth and water. And I want you to draw attention to this personal attendance. 
this personal visitation in God's providence as he cares for the earth. He is seen as one who steps in his eminence, his personal presence. And what is he doing as he's visiting the earth? He's watering. He's enriching it. Uh, verse 9, the river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. You've prepared it. You're, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges. See God's care. It's very tender, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. It's describing God's paths. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. So God's kindness extends to those areas that are far off and abandoned wilderness. Hills gird themselves with joy. Meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Hey, you look at this and go, well, how do hills, meadows, and valleys, and wildernesses sing for joy? They can't sing for joy. It's a picture. This is praise. God visits. He provides. He tends. He cares. He waters. And from that provision, the hills and wilderness and valleys burst forth in fruit. That's praise. Praise is a response to God's provision. No wonder the psalmist in the midst of trials remembers redemption, God's work to provide. And the fruit that is born is praise. Praise. Weighty praise. Who is to rejoice? All the earth. How are we to rejoice? Song and word. To whom? To God. What characterizes this renown that excites this joyous praise to God? His name. The glory of His name. Uh, Look with me again in verse 2. Seeing the glory of His name. His name, uh, when we just, we choose names that Sometimes very flippantly, sometimes we throw names out because we knew somebody that had that name and it didn't just bode well with us. We have all kinds of reasons for choosing names. (laughs) It's hilarious to hear how long a couple takes to choose a name. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, a name represented somebody's character, who they were to be, described their nature. God renamed Abram, Abraham, and Jacob, Israel at key points in their lives to describe a change of life, a change of character. Describe their trust in the Lord. In Exodus 3, 13 through 15, Moses asked for God's name. What is your name? And God responded with, I am that I am, Yahweh, describing his self-existence, his self-sufficiency. The name above all names. The God who needs no one, needs nothing. Self-derived, self-dependent, self-existing. Not us. We're creatures that depend upon God for everything. God is exalted. It's glorious. And what does he say in verse 2? Seeing the glory of his name. Seeing the glory of his character. Well, maybe we need to ask, well, what is glory? If we're going to see the glory of his name, the glory of his character. Well, glory is the word kavod in Hebrew. It describes something that's heavy and weighty. Describing the value of something, the worth of something. Now, you and I may ask, well, what is our financial worth? You may look at a cash flow or our assets. Or what is our worth in weight? And we stand on the scale. We are mass. Different ways that we ascribe value to something. 
what is God's worth? What is the standard of God's value? That's what glory is getting at. What is his weightiness? What are his assets? Verse 2. His name. His name. Well, that kind of that sounds like God. You want to know his worth? You got to go back to God. He is his own standard. Because he is the self-sufficient one. He is the eternal one, the infinite one. Do you want to sing the weightiness of his name? Then you need to understand his name. You need to understand his character. You need to be gripped with the awesomeness of God. And in this psalm, we see the statement of awesome in deeds, or, or the word means terrifying or terrible or fearful. We saw it in Psalm 65, verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us, with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. Gripped with the power of God, we are confronted with our helplessness and futility. And all that we're left with is our standing before this holy God. And he says, what is awesome is your righteousness. That is my hope, my salvation. And it's not just hope for the Jews, but you and I, the ends of the earth. This causes the ends of the earth to give him great, weighty, deep praise. Your praise is weak. My praise is weak. I find grumbling and discontent that comes out of my soul under testing. I begin to realize that I've apprised my name and my value and my worth and denied God his value. I've ceased to look at God's glory in Scripture and I'm looking at my own plan for my life. I've raised myself up, made God low. I will give him weak praise. But as I look at the word of God, I'm confronted with his power and his glory. And he, he helps by saying, look at it in creation. You see the events, the horrifying events of the tornado in the Midwest, or the tsunami in Japan, these displays of power. It shake us, brings us to fear that there is a God who's greater. It evokes weighty, deep praise. Calvin said, nothing so compels us to a due reverence towards God as when we place ourselves before his face. Nothing so compels us to a due reverence towards God as when we place ourselves before his face. Making God's praise glorious and weighty is found in the gloriousness of his name. So we run to his name, we run to his character, and we marvel at his power, eternality, his infinite wisdom, glory, love, wrath, justice, righteousness. It evokes weighty praise, heavy praise. I remember taking my family to Yosemite in California, and being amazed at these tall redwoods. This made me look so tiny and small. Now my kids are between the ages of three and eight, and, uh, you know, you start wondering, well, what if a tree falls over? You know, this is kind of a scary moment, and I'm this way. I'm always thinking pessimistically, <laughs> not optimistically. <laughs> and, and my cracking point was when we went to the Glacier Point, some 7,000 feet in elevation, which we saw individuals climbing that thing. Uh, that was scary to look at. We, we took the easy route and just drove around and around and around for hours until we got to the top. 
as I was confronted with Glacier Point, looking over at this 7,000 feet in elevation, I tripped. I mean, I, I snapped. Kids, stay here. Don't move 10 feet. You know, Rob is like, honey, it's 200 feet over there. What's the big deal? <laughs> There's a rail over there. It, as I grasped the reality of the awesomeness of the height of Glacier Point, the redwoods all around me, I started realizing how small I am and weak I am and, and, and what are the kids going to do? I need to protect them and I'm running around like a freak. <laughs> she would say, yeah, that was quite the event. <laughs> when we come to grips with our position before God, we are brought low. We are depressed in ourselves, but we are impressed with him. Now, this leads us into the renown of God's work because this glorious, eternal, great God who displays his character in the events of creation, and we marvel at the power in creation, we find that this God demonstrates his glory through his work. Four features of his work we'll look at. His retributive work, his retribution, judgment, his redemptive work, his redemptive work, his refining work, and his relational work. Retributive, redemptive, refining, and relational And we see, again, the glory of his name is put on display in his judgment and in redemption. We find in the event of the Red Sea that God, in saving a people, also judged a people. In the cross, we see God saving a people for himself, accrediting the righteousness of Christ's righteous life to our account, that obedient life to the account of those who believe in him. And providing Christ as a substitute payment for our sin. We find a declaration of God's grace and mercy and love and power on our behalf. At the same time, he who crushed his own son because of our sin will deal horrendously with those who stand outside of Christ if he would crush his own son for our deliverance and for his glory and our good. What will he do with those outside of Christ? And so we see his glory unfurled in retribution, and in redemption. Look at 3 and 4. Say to God, so he fills our mouth with this praise, just as, and we saw in chapter 65, in filling the hills and the valleys with good things, they respond together by producing fruit, fruit of grain and flocks. We are filled with the grandeur of God's deeds. And so we respond. And what do we respond with? How awesome, how terrifying are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you, sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. As the psalmist comes to grip with God's terrifying deeds, that he stepped down into time and space to render judgment. He realizes it is terrifying to deal with this holy God. So much so that those who oppose him, enemies, will come cowering like dogs, like animals, cringing, cowering. I've got two German shepherds. And when I'm upset, they know it. They fall down at my feet and they cower and roll over. This is the picture. Helplessness. Destitution. I'm in the hands of the master. In this case, it is not good. But it evokes praise, verse 4, from all the earth. How so? Why would all flesh, these nations, rejoice? Because they had seen and heard of God's deliverance of Israel, the children of men, in verse 5, and saw testimony that when God saves, he also judges. He saved Noah, but judged the world. He saved 
Israel, but judged Egypt. That's a terrifying thing. And you begin to think, is this just for the physical people? Is this for Israel? What about Gentiles who are far off? I want to give you a picture of a description of the nations gathered to worship God. In Revelation 22, it's the last book and the last chapter in your Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Again, these realities of judgment upon God's enemies evoke praise from all the earth, all flesh, nations. Chapter 22, verse 1. Introduce us into the eternal state. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, all flesh. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Am I going to be the servant to worship Him? Am I one of the nations? Verse 4, They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. How about that? Marked by God? This glorious name? And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, when we start seeing the despair of this and the hope, we look at verse 11. Why are the ends of the earth rejoicing? Let the evildoer, verse 11 says, still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. That's a fearful thing. And who has the right to do that? 13, the timeless one, the eternal one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Self-sufficient. Everything begins as its end in him. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Look at 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. See the contrast? Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. That was us. Are we on the outside? Oh, but he has opened up his grace to the nations, to all flesh. We can come. We can have his name on our foreheads. We can be his and worship him. So as the believer in trial, that's the context, looks to the word of God and remembers judgment of God in Egypt. He says, all the earth worships. They're amazed that you would judge, but you would also deliver. And now we see the second. We've seen retribution. Now we see redemption. Verse 5. Come and see what God has done. Past work of God. Finished work. We're coming to behold and to rejoice. We're not adding to it. We're not redoing the work. We are resting in it with great joy. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. That statement is an interesting statement. Uh, Son of man is applied to Christ as a representative of mankind. Children of man is the same idea. Israel was a representative of the nations. God had chosen her as a representation of his love. 
what brings encouragement to us in that? If he delivers his chosen people, he's faithful there, he will do that for the nations who believe in him. He's awesome in his deeds. What did he do? Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. It is an aggressive word of overturning something. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. It's interesting when you read Exodus 12. In fact, I'll go ahead and take you there, Exodus chapter 12. And you see this event of redemption. Uh, sorry, Exodus 14. This is on, off the cuff. So, Exodus 14, verse 13. Here's the redemptive event, crossing through the Red Sea. And ask yourself, what did they do? What did they add? Nothing. They rested. They rejoiced. They feared. God did it all. And you see this in Exodus 14, 13. Moses said to the people, remember, the, the Egyptians have pressed in upon them on the Red Sea. The Red Sea is barring them from escape. They've got the glory cloud of God there on their behalf. And they're left to watch and see what God will do. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, 14, 13, and see the salvation of the Lord. There too are invited to see. Behold, just as the present believers look through the message to see what God has done, which he will work for you today on your behalf. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And verse 31, dropping down to the end of the chapter. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They stood back and watched the salvation of their God. And God says, I'm going to get glory The glory of his name will be put on display through his judgment and redemption. That's amazing. God has tied his work to his own glory. Will he get glory? You better believe it. Then will he secure salvation? You better believe it. It's done. We stand back and watch. And believers, present believers, we too look through the proclamation of scripture to rejoice in what God has already done. Even as we look at the cross the display of God's redemption, what God's glory was put on display, his justice and his love, his holiness and his grace, his power and his mercy, all put on display there at the cross. And so we come and see and behold and rejoice. All the earth worships you. I'll never forget 1994. Uh, I, when I was married that year, I shouldn't forget that. <laughs> but it was also a year in which I woke up at 4.29 in the morning by an earthquake. And I thought it was the train down the way that it derailed and was coming through and I was dead. For many of us in that student housing there at Master's College in California, we were thrown across the room. Our furniture was thrown across the room. That house or that building felt like a five-year-old took a Lego set and was just throwing it up and down and turning it around. You began to realize how powerless we were. 
the students were all taken out into the baseball field. As we sat on that field, as I sat there, still experiencing tremor after tremor, I was at rest, not because the earthquake or the tremors had stopped, but I was in a different position. I was now watching these waves. It looked like waves of the ocean underneath me moving and then hitting the building and the building tottering and shaking. I was glad I wasn't in there. <laughs> I was out here. It was safe. What was the difference? My position had changed. My position had changed. Same earthquake, same potential for destructiveness, different position. This is the believer. In his trial, in his suffering, he recounts through Scripture God's judgment. He says there are awesome, terrifying deeds. You think it's fearful to stand in an earthquake or the power of a tornado or a tsunami? Then think of the God who stands above and beyond all of that. That's the one we have to do with. And then the believer turns and says, but I've been redeemed. I've joined the throng of believers who've trusted in his redemptive work. Different position, same power unfolding, brings joy in the midst of suffering and hardship. This is what draws our ultimate hope in our suffering, is to know that God is for us. To know that he has stepped in on my behalf and dealt with my sin so that I could have a righteous standing before God in Jesus Christ. My debt paid. My hell paid. That encourages us in our suffering. So this redemption then drives refinement. Refinement. And we see this in the following verses. In, in verse 8, if you join me there. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. This idea of soul among the living is in the context of spiritual life. He is guarding our salvation, our spiritual health. He has not let our feet slip, and he's ensured that by his refinement, verses 10 through 12, the word for you, O God, have tested us, is how he keeps us, keeps our soul among the living. He keeps us, as the NAS says, in life. This is a cause for praise, he says in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples. Let his praise be heard. Why? Because he's guarding our life. He's sustaining our salvation. And he works in our lives to keep us from running from him, from bailing out, from running into destruction. And so he describes this refinement in verse 10 for you. Now notice the personal visitation. You can't escape that. We saw this in Psalm 65, 9 and following where God is visiting the earth. He's, he's providing, he's watering, he's crowning. It's very personal. Providence, yet personal. And now we see his personal involvement in our lives through trials. It's not that God is left. He is drawn near. Reminds us of Hebrews 12, that he chastens and disciplines those whom he loves. And how does he do that? You've tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. It's the idea of taking silver and purifying it in the fire. So that's true and tried, real silver. Verse 11, he's not done though. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Shackles. Pretty rough depiction here. Maybe evoking slavery to the Egyptians. Maybe evoking the Assyrians when they came through and bound them up. Or the Babylonians. 
you let men ride over our heads. We've mentioned this already. It's the depiction of a conquered army. And the conqueror rides his chariots over the heads of those who are crushed in the fields. You let men. Notice again, you, O God, test us. You've tried us. You brought us. You laid a crushing burden. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water from one trial to another trial. And yet, you've brought us out to a place of abundance. Now, we know that he's not talking about an emphasis of physical abundance in this text. He's not saying that he doesn't supply physically. But the emphasis is spiritual because of 13 and following. He describes God's work in his life spiritually. And we'll look at that in a moment. He's describing God's intense refinement in the lives of those who are his own. Now, what's interesting, I don't want you to miss this. The believer comes to gather corporately with the present assembly of God. They come and see together. And they're joining those of the past as they remember the message. And there let us rejoice in him. The past and present believers join together under redemption. But then he responds, as he's amazed at God's work, he responds individually. So the corporate gathering underneath the message of the proclamation of redemption drives a personal response. And we see this in verse 13 through 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. You see the personal response. I will, I will, I will. Now, why was he thinking, in the midst of his trial, of running to the house of God and offering sacrifices of all things? That's not typically how I think. Lord, bail me out, get me out of this. He's thinking, if I could get to the corporate worship, that's where I need to go. I need to be impressed with God, and I have intention to give him praise. The burnt offerings in the Old Testament was an acknowledgement of one's sinfulness, and yet the substitutionary work of God the provision of a lamb that pointed ultimately to Christ as a substitute lamb. So if someone offered burnt offerings, they're acknowledging my sinfulness and my Savior. But it also underlines thanksgiving, an offering of thanksgiving and praise. So his focus is to get to the house of the Lord, be impressed with God, acknowledge my sin, acknowledge God's provision for a Savior, pointing, as Hebrews says, to Christ's substitutionary work, and respond with thanks. That's the work of redemption in someone's life and heart as it captures their heart with the glory of God. This refinement then brought spiritual protection. It brought a spiritual purity and refinement in their life. And it brings prosperity. It's abundance. It's that it evokes great praise and acknowledgement of sin. Now, look with me at the last work of God in this text, and that is verses 16 through 20. We'll call this the relational work, verses 16 through 20. We've seen his retributive work, his redemptive work, his refining work, evoking an individual response, and then finally relational work. Now, notice in verse 16, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. He's come to the corporate gathering, impressed with the message that's been proclaimed, of what God has already done. He rejoices in it. He then responds individually. But that individual response leads him back to the assembly. In the midst of the assembly, 
he gets up and says, come and hear. Let me tell you what God is doing in my life. Yes, through the suffering. Yes, through the trials. What does he say in verse 17? I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. This is where we get the spiritual abundance that's being emphasized in this text. Verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Verse 20, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So all you who fear God, who tremble at his work, who are amazed at the glory of his name, come and listen. This is what God has done for my soul. He tested me. And you know what came out? Not a love for sin, but high praise. That's what God brought out through these trials. I was encouraged that in the midst of my suffering, God's visitation refining me, impressing me with his redemptive work, what came out of my heart through his work is high praise. I didn't cherish sin in my heart. That would have been mark of someone who's not a believer. These testings showed where my faith is. Now, one of the great expressions of our salvation, one of the great benefits of our salvation is fellowship with God. Apart from his saving work, his substitutionary work on our behalf to pay for our sins and provide a righteous standing before God, we could never have fellowship with God. We would be on the outside, opposed by God. So one of the great expressions of this fellowship is prayer. Prayer. And what does he say? God has attended. God has listened in verse 19. Prayer has been accepted. I've been able to come near to the throne of grace. How can that be? Verse 20. Blessed be God because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. He binds prayer, this communion with God, to his hesed, his steadfast love, his salvation love is the description there. This word loving kindness is equated with salvation in Psalm 13 and Psalm 21. Forgiveness and cleansing from sin in Psalm 51. It can be trusted in in Psalm 13, rejoiced in, hoped in. It's abundant and plenteous, Psalm 86. It's as great as the heavens and it's everlasting. This is why you can praise, because God has united the believer with his salvation love through his redemptive work. On the plane to India, my first trip to India, uh, I was pretty shaken. I mean, I'm one of those guys that's just a hermit, enjoys being at home and doing my own thing. You'd think me standing up here, that wouldn't be the case, but that is the case. And uh, the Lord stretched me. A couple years ago, by sending me to India. It was a pretty frightening thing for me. I was pretty shaken up by it. But I, I remember as I was flying to Boston before I went the leg way over to India, um, just being burdened to write to my children. You see, as I was thinking about the distance and the fact that it could, the plane could go down, I wanted to write about my love for them. My heart was burning to be with them. The separation has made it unbearable, the thought of losing them. And so I, I wrote personal letters to each one of them, just revisiting my, my love, and what I've sought to train them in, to remember the gospel, remember Christ. The Lord brings trials into our life that often seems like he's separated from us. But this text reminds us he attends to us. He draws near. He does that reminding us of his ultimate promise in which we've been bound with God in Christ. And there we find our joy in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such texts like these that remind us of our great 
joyous Savior. We're reminded of Romans 8 that you did not spare your son, but in Christ you've freely given us all things. Remind us of the precious promises that we have in Jesus Christ to sustain our weariness, our weakness, and the trials that you've visited us in, to refine us and to remind us that you are at work weaning us from sin, causing us to cherish you and to give you great praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.